0: The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Morning, church. We're very unbalanced. We're like very full here on this side. I hope you like each other. That's all I'm saying. Hey, welcome to church. My name is Brian. If you're new here, I'm the lead pastor here. I have the privilege of serving uh, in that capacity, and I'll be preaching this morning. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you have one uh, available, um, Philippians chapter three is where we are going to be. Uh, as Mark mentioned, uh, and I think all of you know by now, uh, last week, we, you know, we took a vote, and uh, Bent Creek took their vote, and combined, uh, we saw 95% Uh, Of affirmation of this merger, which we are humbled and just grateful for, honestly. Um, You know, their threshold was 75%, and some weeks ago, we just, many of us, I I gave this to some folks who are kind of prayer warriors around here, and our elders and our staff just began to pray as well, uh, that it would actually be 95%. Um, and so to see that combined vote be 95, 0.35% is like, the Lord's like, here's 0.35, just to, right? It's just so humbling and, and amazing to see that happen. And so um, as Mark mentioned again, buckle up, because now the hard work uh, is going to begin. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that this isn't going to change us some. Uh, if you've ever adopted a pet or a child, <laughs> you know it changes you, right? Like There, it's, there, there are going to be things that change, uh, and yet um, the DNA of who we are as a church is not going to change. We are still going to be the same church with the same mission and holding the same values as we move into this new space, and adopting an entire church family is a big, big deal, right? So is there going to be a lot of work to do to uh, not only the building stuff, the, the logistics, but um, building a relationship, building trust, getting to know people, um, serving them as I love Mark basically took my whole intro, which was uh, let's remember very specifically Paul's instructions to us already in chapter two of Philippians that in humility, we count others as more significant than ourselves. Um, it's going to go a long way to allowing us to be one church and be unified. My prayer for some months now has been strengthen, unify, and grow our church. Grow us deep, not just wide. So um, the plan at the moment is uh, Bent Creek will gather this week and next week. Next week, the 30th, will be their final gathering as Bent Creek Church. Uh, And then as of November 6th, they will be over here with us. Uh, temporarily while we do some renovations that gives us the freedom to sort of do the things we need to do immediately in that building, get kids rooms ready, uh, work on the auditorium a little bit, and then Lord willing, uh, we'll have enough of it done to be able to be over there for Christmas Eve and have one giant Christmas Eve gathering. That's the tentative plan. Anything can happen, anything can change. And so um, just, be, just be aware of that. There's gonna be some folks enfolding into this gathering uh, from Bent Creek and also from Missio because we're gonna be asking uh, 11 o'clockers who don't need to be there to come to this gathering so that we can make room in the 11 because that's the time that they're used to. Um, so we anticipate in November being together, um, there's some minor renovation to be done. And as I said, Christmas Eve, we hope to be there uh, at least for that gathering, um, even if we're not there fully. So it's exciting, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, awesome. I wanna just give a quick shout out to our staff team. I heard so many people say, hey, the way you guys communicated this was amazing. Uh, We felt like we had no stone unturned, no question unanswered. Everything was clear and concise and all that. And that is largely due to our staff and the effort that they put in. Not only, hold on, I want you to applaud, but hold on. Not only in the communication side of things, but uh, organizing our town hall meetings and and preparing for that and the joint service. And so, uh, you know, I just, can we thank our staff together for all of their hard work? Usually people come and thank me and I'm like, I had so little to do with this, you, you would be shocked. So um, anyway, it's true. Um, all right, Philippians is where we are. Uh, just to give you, again, context, Paul is writing a letter. He's in jail in Rome. Uh, the Philippian church has sent a financial gift with him along with a guy named Epaphroditus to help care for him while he's under house arrest. Paul writes a letter back. He's expressing his thanks to that church and God's work in and through them. And then he's giving them some instructions because he can't visit them in person. Uh, And so one of the major themes of the book of Philippians is joy, which is why we titled this series Joy Reclaimed. And he mentions joy more than any other book of the Bible mentions joy. Jesus says in John 10, we read the part of it in our liturgy, but right before what we read, he says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life, life abundant, a joy-filled life. And of course, when he says uh, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, he's speaking of the enemy, Satan, who does steal, kill, destroy. Um, But there's, there's another way that the thief steals. He steals joy in the church. He comes in and he steals our joy. And, and so Paul, as he's writing this letter, he's about halfway through now, he's going to give some warnings and some instructions to the church at Philippi on how to be on guard that their joy does not get stolen by the enemy and those who serve him. And so uh, let's pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to cover the first 11 verses, Lord willing, this morning. I just spilled water all over my Bible. That's awesome. And, uh, and so let me read it, and I'll pray for us. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, you know he's a preacher because he's like halfway through. (laughs) Finally, I got two more chapters left, but finally, uh, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision. that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we give you great thanks and praise for The positive result of this uh, adoption merger vote, and so grateful that the people of Bent Creek were um, very unified in their decision to want to enfold with us. And so in the coming weeks and months, we just ask you to do what only you can do, which is to bring us a stunning unity um, as one people under the banner of Christ. We thank you for the opportunity to be gathered together in the room this morning as we look at your word. We are in your presence, Holy Spirit. We are under the authority of your word. And so again, I pray and I ask that you would fill me, Holy Spirit, and allow me to rightly divide this word so that it may be an encouragement to my brothers and sisters who are here, that we may see the glory of Jesus Christ and cling to him with even more fervency. Lord, that we would turn from our sin and ourselves and turn to Jesus and find in him uh, the joy that our souls long for. So we need you. I need you. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus and everybody said, Amen. amen. All right. So if we go, uh, I'm just going to give you my point here and we'll kind of work through these first few verses. Uh, The first thing I want to point out to you in our text here is um, Paul's sort of exhortation to rejoice in Christ. Rejoicing in Christ. He says, again, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So he's basically saying, look, as I wrap this thing up, uh, I want to remind you again that your joy needs to be in Christ this is what he said. It's, no, it's to say the same things to you. He said this over and over again already in the book of Philippians. Their joy is his aim. But no, notice how his tone changes. When he gets to verse two, he says, look out three times. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who is he talking about? There's a group who came to be known as the Judaizers. Many of you may, may know this, but in case you don't, uh, when, when the gospel first came, uh, all the first Christians were Jews, right? Uh, Jesus was a Jew. He, 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 uh, he, he worked in Jerusalem primarily. And then when he uh, departed, all of his disciples were Jewish. The, the gospel being preached in Jerusalem, the first converts were Jewish, okay? And so um, as the gospel began to spread to other places and other lands, pagan people Gentiles, non-Jewish people, began to also embrace the gospel, began to surrender their lives to Jesus. And all of a sudden, this question arose in the early church. What do we do with the Gentiles? Because many people assume that Christianity was just the next iteration of the Jewish faith. So, okay, here are people who have no history with the Jewish scriptures, who have no history with the law, with, with um, the, the rituals and the, and the you know, how we're called to worship, are, are we requiring them, should they be required to observe all the same Jewish laws and rituals? And two groups arose. One were called the Judaizers. And they said, yes, Gentile believers must become Jewish if they're going to be Christian. Yes, they should believe in Jesus, but they also need to convert to Judaism, which meant following the law. Uh, and particularly for males undergoing the rite of circumcision, which was, uh, essentially early on was a sign of this covenant that had been made between God and Abraham and the people of God and was a promise that I'm going to obey all of the law. So the the Judaizers said, yes, Gentiles have to become Jews before they can become Christians. In fact, there's one place where the Judaizers say, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Paul, on the other hand, says, no. Jesus plus anything else as a requirement for God's full and final acceptance and approval is a totally different gospel and should be done away with. So you see, this was a very sharp contention. This was a huge controversy. And if you're with us in our study of the book of Acts, um, when you get to Acts chapter 15, uh, there's a, a council in Jerusalem, and the leaders of the early church at that time meet with Paul and the Judaizers, and they argue and debate back and forth. And eventually, the church uh, in Jerusalem sides with Paul. They say, "You know what? No, he's right. For, for Gentile believers, the only for all believers, the only thing that's required is faith in Christ, in His finished work. Okay, you do not have to undergo the rite of circumcision. You do not have to." Uh, uh, follow the law as a requirement because Jesus fulfilled the law for us. But from that moment on, this group called the Judaizers were a rock in Paul's shoe. They followed him everywhere that he went. Every time he'd go into a place and preach the gospel, he would start a church. He would leave. They would come in behind him and go, well, Paul's half right, but here's the rest of the truth. Okay, this, the entire letter to the Galatians is all about this which we studied back in 2017. And so as he's he's in jail, whether or not the Judaizers have ever come to Philippi, he knows they eventually will. And so he goes, hey, watch out. They are the unclean dogs. Dog was a term of derision used by the Jews towards the Gentiles. They were unclean, pagan dogs. And Paul says, no, no, no. Actually, the people who think they're clean are the ones who are unclean. They're the dogs. They're evildoers by requiring all this obedience to laws and regulations in order to be right with God, uh, they think they're good, but they're actually, they're actually doing evil. They're gonna be the ones who on the last day, Jesus says, depart from me wicked. I never knew you. They just mutilate the flesh by requiring this rite of circumcision. Uh, they're actually just just cutting themselves. It means nothing without Christ. And so they, this group... Paul gets very angry and very passionate about this because he believes so strongly in the exclusivity of the gospel, but also the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just the singularity of the gospel, right? The, this is the only thing, the gospel, plus nothing else is what you need. They are making outward conformity to rules and regulations and rituals the sign of right standing with God. And by the way, that still exists today, All right? We haven't quite grown out of that. Whether that means Jesus plus, uh, I don't watch R-rated movies and drink, or Jesus plus, uh, you know, whatever it is. Uh, Jesus plus the way I vote. Jesus plus, um, you know, there's dietary restrictions. I mean, there's all kinds of things that in our world, we still uh, make an addition to the gospel. Legalism, pride, religion, Paul called all of these things confidence in the flesh. All right, another idea, another word for that is human effort. It's an outside-in righteousness. It's an external conformity that you think makes you right with God. And it's a false gospel, and it is the thief of our joy. And God hates it, and Paul hate, hated it. And so his counter to that is, no, we, verse 3, we are the circumcision, meaning a circumcision of heart. The reality is Jesus did not just die for our sins. That is absolutely true, but that's only part of the gospel. Jesus did die for our sins, but he also lived a life we couldn't. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law in our place. And so, when we receive with the empty hands of faith the finished work of Christ in his perfect life, in his sacrificial death, and in his glorious resurrection, our old life is cut away. We are set apart as a new creation, as new people in Christ. And the old life is. Circumcised is cut off, cut away from us, and we become new. And there are three marks, according to the text, of being part of the circumcision of the heart, of actually knowing that you belong to Jesus. Look back at the text with me again. He says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, that's one, and glory in Christ Jesus, that's two, and put no confidence in the flesh. Bless you. That's, that's third, We worship by the Spirit, because the Spirit of God is now indwelling us and crying out from within us, Abba, Father, right? There's a draw to worship the Lord because the Spirit of God who worships the Lord constantly is within us. We boast in or rejoice in or glory in Christ. Our joy is found in Him, and we put no confidence in our human effort outside of Jesus. Now listen, here's the reality. Our hearts, yours and mine, are so prone to wander, aren't they? either into disobedience to the things that God has commanded us, or to relying on our obedience to show that we are right with God. We, we go sometimes in the same day, both of them, right? Disobedience or relying on our obedience. But real Christianity is real time dependence on him and not on ourselves. Rejoicing in him and not in our effort. And so Paul's call here is to rejoice in Christ, but he's not done, he's gonna continue. Guys, with me so far. Verse four. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. <laughs> I love that. He's like, look, we shouldn't be doing this, but if you wanna compare resumes, let's do it, okay? And, and then he says, He says, Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So here's what I want you to see. Second point gaining with Christ. Gaining with Christ. There are losses for sure, but there are huge gains in Christ. So he says, look, nobody should be putting confidence in the flesh. Nobody, three times he says that, no one should be putting confidence in their human effort apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. Nobody should do that. But if you wanna put stat sheets side by side, let's do it. And Paul lists out seven reasons here. Of course he does, because seven in Hebrew, the Hebrew thinking is the perfect and complete number. So of course, Paul's gonna give seven reasons, right? And four of them, the first four, he had nothing to do with. So he's like, you want to see who's more Jewish here? You want to play the I'm so Jewish game? He's like, bring it on because I have a religious advantage. That's the first thing he says here, circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, Circumcision was required on the eighth day was ideal, but it didn't always happen. But he says, no, my parents made sure it happened on the eighth day. Religious advantage. I'm from the people of Israel. He's purely purely ethnically uh, from the Jewish people. So he has an ethnic advantage. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He has an ancestral advantage. Um, what's the next one he says here? Uh, Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning my family was so devout and dedicated, they did everything right, according to the law. So he has a cultural advantage. Then he says, he kind of puts it on himself, Okay. Uh, As to righteousness, sorry, as to the law, a Pharisee. I've got an educational advantage. He trained under the most uh, rigorous training and the the most well-respected teachers of the law. Okay, Uh, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. This is almost like a personality advantage. I was more passionate than the rest of you knuckleheads. Like I went after people who I thought were against the law of Moses. What did you do? And he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He has a morality advantage. Not that he was perfect or sinless, but that according to the judgment of the law, he was about as good as it gets. And Paul did before Christ what all of us so naturally do he tried to justify himself, he put confidence in the flesh. And you know what? He was pretty good at it. He was a specimen of man at his most privileged and religious and moral and passionate and devoted. He was also striving to do better every single day. He laughed joy and he was full of rage because he never knew if he measured up and he hated Jesus and his followers. And so He even says in the book of Acts that he was full of rage towards them, right? You can't be full of rage and have joy. It just doesn't work, right? So he was confident and he was proud of his heritage and his education and his training. And he stood on that until he walked down the road to Damascus. And then he met Jesus. And all of a sudden, he realized that everything that he had put his hope in, everything he had put his confidence in, none of that stuff made him acceptable before God. Now, here's the reality: Uh, if you, if we went this afternoon up and down Haywood, and just asked people on the street uh, if there's a God, and one day you have to give an account before Him, what are you going to say? And we don't have to do that because you can go to YouTube and there's tons of videos on people doing exactly the same thing. And 90% of them, here's how they respond. They say, well, uh, like they'll ask, do you think you're going to go to heaven when you die? Or if there's a God, what are you going to, if you have to stand before him? And they'll say, well, I believe in God. And I mean, I'm a pretty good person. So yeah, I think, I think that'll count. What's funny to me is there's, it's either like, yeah, I believe in heaven and God and I'm going there or I don't believe in it. There's, I haven't seen a single person yet who goes, I believe in heaven and hell and I'm for sure going to hell. Like I haven't seen that person. They either just say, yeah, I believe in, I mean, I'm sure I'll go there or no, nah, I don't think I believe in it at all. But if you press them and you say, well, how good do you have to be? Or compared to whom? Like what's your standard? What are you comparing yourself to? We're going to start to lean on all kinds of other things to prop us up. So will say, well, you know, I recycle. <laughs> I give money to the homeless when they ask me. Like I, there was one uh, I did watch on YouTube. They went to Michigan State and they were asking students and this guy was like, well, I'm in the pre-med program. So I'm gonna be a doctor. So I'm probably gonna help a lot of people one day. So I think God will give me the thumbs up on that. The big guy, he said, the big guy will give me a thumbs up. And I'm like, you're for sure going to hell. But um, no, it's kidding. I don't know it's hard. I don't know it's hard. Uh, but that's the thing, right? Like we start to, well, I mean, I voted this way or I do these kind of things. And we start to lean on our own righteousness. We start to prop ourselves up with and justify ourselves based on the things that we've done. But see for Paul, the gospel of Jesus Christ completely changed his system of personal accounting. He said, I, you wanna compare me and you? I was better on all counts, which is a big claim. And yet, whatever gain I had, whatever whatever things that I leaned on that I thought went into the asset column for me, my heritage, my education, power, prestige, morality, status, you know what? Apart from Christ, they're actually all liabilities. And if I must lose all of those things in order to gain Jesus Christ, it is worth it. He is the ultimate gain. I wonder if we could say the same thing. See, Jesus himself said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And so as we think about things that we are afraid of losing in order to gain Christ, that there are people in this room who are not yet followers of Jesus and you wrestle because you say in order to Receive Jesus with empty hands. I got to let go of some stuff, and I don't know what I'm going to do without my stuff. These things give me identity. These things give me meaning. These things give me purpose. And if I let go of them, can I trust that Jesus will actually fill my hands with far more than I ever let go of? So listen, with all the with all the love and sincerity I have, I just I, I want I have to say this no matter what you gain here, no matter your net worth, no matter the legacy you leave behind with your family, no matter how many friends you have, no matter the accomplishments and the achievements that you, uh, you know, achieve in your life, uh, no matter how many businesses you start, no matter, no, if you do all of that stuff and you miss Jesus, you have lost. You've lost. And coming to Christ doesn't necessarily mean you have to get rid of or you will lose all of those things, but are you willing? Is there a willingness to say, Jesus, if I have you, it doesn't matter what else you take away from me because I know that you are the only thing that ultimately matters. Now, He's got one more thing to say, and I think this is actually the most important thing, so uh, I dedicated not much time to it. Uh, God, I hate when this happens. Okay, look with me at verse eight. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish Uh, is knowing Christ. This seems to be the most important thing for Paul. Um, It really is the most important thing in the scripture. Like this is the heart of the Bible right here in Philippians 3, knowing Christ. This sentence, uh, verse eight, is fascinating to me because where is Paul right now? Prison. Prison. So he literally has lost everything. So this isn't a hypothetical Right? This isn't theory. This isn't like, well, if I had to lose everything, I would. He has lost everything. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of this surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I have lost everything. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I have Christ. Now, many of you know this, but... Um, this word rubbish, let's talk about that for a second. Uh, Sometimes strong words make a point. And Paul has already used some strong words here in talking about the the, the Judaizers, right? They're dogs, they're evildoers, they're mutilators of the flesh. It's pretty strong language. Well, here also he's using strong language. But somehow when we translate into English, I think the, and I don't fault them for this, but it's too nice of a word. It's too, like no one uses rubbish except Alex, I think, because you're British, but um, just kidding. I love you. Um, Can you say, no, uh, I want to hear you say it. So, so there's this sense in which it's too clean. It's too nice. It's too polite of a word. This is a strong word, the original language here. Um, it, it means dung. That's another translation you might have. And it's actually stronger than that because it, it, it's human excrement is what it stands for. So I count everything, all my achievements, all my gains, all that that I have lost, I count it all as poop. It doesn't matter. Like, it's, it's the stuff you flush away and so I think like we lose a little bit of the strength of what Paul's trying to get across here uh, when we look at the word rubbish. You know, it's just such a cute word. And that's not at all what he's conveying here. He says, all that matters is that I am found in Christ, not standing on my own righteousness. So we see here, there's, there's essentially two ways to live. My righteousness or Jesus's righteousness. And those two are mutually exclusive. I cannot stand on my own righteousness and embrace the righteousness of Jesus as well. It's one or the other. You got to jump out of the plane. Which shoot are you grabbing? And the reality is that, every, I'm going to broad brush, every, every other religion on this planet and even our own hearts are bent on self righteousness, self-justification. We view, this is like, regardless of the religion, I'm going to call this man's gospel. I've used this a long time ago, but it, it stands, it bears repeating. Man's gospel is basically like a credit score. Okay. So how do you get a high credit score? Well, you work really hard and you make wise decisions. Okay. Um, if you didn't, and here's the thing, lenders will gladly lend you money if you have a high credit score, but if you have a low credit score because you were foolish or rebellious and stupid or because you know, they gave you a t-shirt with a credit card with 27,000% interest when you were a freshman in college and you were like, "Whoa, well, let's do it. I need a flat screen. And you wanna blame them for predatory lending, but also you can Google how do credit cards work. So anyway, that's another rant. So you, if you have a low credit score, lenders call you what? A credit risk. risk. We don't know if we can trust you with this money that we're gonna give you and charge you exorbitant interest for And so, how do you, if you have a bad credit score, low credit, because of your foolishness and your stupid decisions, how do you get a better credit score? You work really hard, it takes a long time and a lot of effort. And that's how most people view, that's, that's most religions, that's how a lot of people view Christianity. I gotta build back up. I've ha- so things like stop doing wrong, start doing right, get your act together. Like all that stuff makes sense to us, right? Earn, achieve, like that's how our hearts are naturally bent. The problem with the credit score gospel is that when you think you've got your act together, it, so it makes you just radically insecure. And when you think you've got your act together, when you think you're doing well, when you think you're you know, wiser than everyone else, it makes you shamelessly superior arrogant, rude. Why can't these people get their act together like I got mine together, right? That's how we look down at other people. We judge them because we feel superior because we're doing it right and they're not. But when we fall, when we trip, when, when we are foolish, when we make dumb decisions, we feel shameful inferiority. Can't believe I did this again. Here we go. I screwed up, I failed, I'm nothing, I'm worth nothing. And the gospel of Jesus comes into our our view and it is so counterintuitive that it doesn't even make sense to our hearts. Like when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. God. We go, wait, what now? This doesn't, doesn't compute, right? Jesus, he made Jesus who knew no sin, who lived perfectly, sinlessly above reproach, completed, fulfilled the law perfectly in our place, the perfect human. He made Jesus the embodiment of our sin. He took all of our sin on himself, so that we, by faith in what Jesus has done in bearing the penalty for our sin, might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear that line? The righteousness of God. This is a righteousness that supersedes the righteousness of Adam and Eve. What? So that if we put our trust in what Jesus has done for us, his life, his death, his resurrection, God freely gives us his own righteousness through Christ received with empty hands. In other words, the message of the cross is that Jesus gives his absolute best to the people who know they do not have their act together. And when that penny drops in your soul and you realize you have been, theologically we call it imputed with the righteousness of God, That you are as righteous in the view of God as Jesus Himself is, spotless, perfect, above reproach, it makes all our other attempts at other kinds of righteousness flushable. Educational righteousness? My superiority because of my morality? Flush it away. All that matters is that God considers me righteous because of Jesus, and that should fill our souls with joy. So, every once in a while, uh, we get—I uh, get help from uh, catechism. Uh, catechism is just a body of teaching, usually meant to train children in the things of the faith. And the Heidelberg Catechism from 1563 uh, is of German origin, obviously, <clears throat> and um, was a sort of an early Lutheran. Catechism, And uh, I just want to answer the question here from the Heidelberg, how are you righteous before God? I want you to hear how the Heidelberg answers this. How are you righteous before God? Answer, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil. Nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never sinned or been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, all I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. Isn't that good news? So listen, if you're here today and you are an absolute train wreck, hot mess, hot mess express, but you are clinging to Jesus and Jesus alone, you are righteous. And so what is of Surpassing worth to Paul is to know Christ, the source of his joy. He mentions it twice here in these last four verses that I would know Christ. What does he mean by that? Um, He doesn't just mean knowledge of, the language here is the, the language of experience. There's knowing, and then there's knowing. Or in our, in our sort of modern um, vernacular today, that we got that little, what is it? I-Y-K-Y-K, if you know, you know. You ever seen that on like a picture or something? Like somebody posts this picture of a lunchbox from the 80s and they're like, if you know, you know. And we're like, yes, I know all about Dukes of Hazard or Chips or Airwolf, you know, stuff I grew up with. Anyway, um, it's a language of experience. And the language of experience is all over the Bible. Taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Right. Um, Apparently, while I was gone on a little trip recently, um, Matt Beckler's mom made some sugar cookies and brought them in for the office. And I'm pretty sure one staff member ate all or most of them, and I won't tell you his name, but his initials are Larry Shingler. And um, everyone was raving about how good these cookies were, you know, and how amazing they taste. And I don't know, because I didn't taste one. I didn't get any, okay? and so they can describe the cookies to me. They can describe the buttery texture and flavor and how sugary they are. And, and I get it, but I don't get it because I didn't, I didn't taste it. This is, this is what Paul's getting at. I want to know spiritually, knowledge without experience leads to a thin, hollow, shallow faith that dries out really, really quickly. So we have to understand that Jesus is not just a concept to be believed in, but a person to encounter and to experience. And you have to know someone in order to love them. And so one test of do I know Christ is do you love him? Do you love him? And if you can't say that you love him, then maybe you don't know him, or at least don't know him enough to say that you love him. But when you know him and you love him, you want to know him more. There's a draw, there's a drive to know more and more and more of him. And so we seek him. We seek him through his word. We seek him through prayer. We seek him in community and in worship gatherings like this. We continually, our hearts, our affections are set on Christ. And so Paul says here, I want to know him. Essentially, I'm going to paraphrase these last verses. I want to know him. I want to know his cross. I want to know his suffering. I want to know the power of his resurrection and I want to become like him. In other words, Paul wants whatever is ahead of him to draw him closer and closer in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and that his life would reflect more and more what the life of Christ looked like. Now, he knows that as Jesus suffered before he was taken into glory, Paul, too, will have to suffer before he's taken to glory. And that's the, that's the trajectory of all of our lives, right? Right? Jesus said, um, in this life, you will face tribulation, hardship, suffering, even persecution. But take heart because I've overcome the world. And so we we are sort of pulled along with Jesus through this life, pain, sorrow, and suffering, and then brought into glory. And so when, when we understand that we are viewed as perfect, and righteous in the sight of God, we are willing, we will will go through whatever pain, whatever sorrow, whatever circumstance in order that we might gain Christ. And as Paul says here, and I'll wrap up with this, in Romans chapter eight, um, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, meaning his entire life, not just that month, (laughs) I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not Worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. As Paul says, bring it on, right? This is his whole to live is Christ, to die is gain. You know? It, it makes you annoyingly impenetrable, right, to the rest of the world. I am righteous in Christ. I don't have to earn anything but because of the joy that I have, I want to follow him with everything I have, even if that means suffering for me, even if that means pain for me, because I have glory to gain. Amen? All right. Uh, so we wrap up. Got a couple questions we'll throw up on the screen. We'll move into our time of response. Uh, first question, where am I tempted to put confidence in the flesh? we're all tempted at times to put our confidence in our human effort and our ability. Some of us maybe are more legalistically bent than others. And so we feel like if I've done all my Bible reading every day this week, God loves me more. And if I haven't, he loves me less. And I got to get back on the horse and do it. And I'm not saying you shouldn't read your Bible, but you shouldn't read your Bible in order to be right with God because he can't. So maybe it's not even a spiritual thing, right? It's just, I'm going to do this. I'm going to Run my business in my own strength. I'm gonna manage these people. I'm gonna parent my kids. You know, Where am I tempted to put my confidence in my own flesh and not trust in and depend on the Lord Jesus? Only you can answer that for yourself. Second question, what keeps me from seeing Christ as my ultimate gain? What am I afraid of losing for his sake? What am I holding on to that I feel like if I, if I had to let go of that, if I had to lose it in order to gain Christ, I'm, not, I'm just not sure it'd be worth it. Not saying God, God's going to take it from you, but like the fact that I'm holding on to it might be an indication, as we sang about earlier, um, that we are, we've got an idol, that we are unwilling to wrench from our hands in order that we might gain Christ. Third, how does knowing that I am given the righteousness of God through Jesus affect my joy? If that doesn't stir something in you, then you need to just meditate on that reality, right? Because of Jesus, I am given the righteousness of God. it It is imputed to me as my sin was imputed to Christ. He died in my place. I have been given the righteousness of God. And that's an amazing reality and truth that ought to completely wreck us in such a good way. So how does it affect my joy? Does it stir my affections for God? Does it make me more joyful uh, in my present circumstances because I know what God thinks about me because of Christ? And then last, in light of what I've received, the righteousness of God through Christ, how can I continue to know Christ more? How do I pursue him? In what ways do do I want to grow in my pursuit of him and to know him more? Um, Just answer that how you feel God's, you know, moving in your in your spirit there. All right, I'm gonna leave these on the board for you. Um, I'll pray and we'll move into our time of communion and response. Gone a little long here this morning, I apologize, but um, uh, these tables are open for those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ. So if you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome to come to these tables um, as we come weekly to remember, to celebrate, and to receive Grace from the Lord. And so we come uh, dipping the bread into the wine or the juice, whatever our conscience allows. We're remembering the broken body of Jesus to make us whole. We are remembering the the blood of Christ shed for us to to remove the stains of our sin, to be clothed in his righteousness, which can never be stained again. Um, And so we come in thanksgiving and in need. We need this meal. We need the grace of the Lord to meet us in our weakness. And so we come asking for that and receiving his strength and power. As you come back to your seats, there are black boxes in the back. If you have connect cards, prayer requests, or if you want to give financially to the work of this ministry, you can do that. And then uh, the band's going to lead us in a couple songs as we make our way out of here this morning. Father, I thank you so much for your kindness to us. Thank you for the beauty of this passage of scripture. And uh, I pray that something that's been said today would stick to us. And, would allow us to uh, just rest in the righteousness of God that has been given to us in Christ and would motivate us to know you more deeply, Jesus, and to live our lives for your glory. And so uh, help us right now as we respond to honor you, to worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit, amen.